Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's the Wonky Show. We've got some future visions to look at, demand for HE to guesstimate, some big generational shifts and some new funding for the sector in Wales. It's all coming up. The story that uh, Lewis Helton, a kind of one of the first professors of higher education in in the UK, used to tell what was it goes back to the the days of Oxford, where there was a student practicing archery in the street and killed a local person, and there was a big debate about whether the student should be dealt with um, by the university or by the local police. And- Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson, still self-isolating up here in the attic, but here to make sense of everything going on. As usual, we have two fabulous guests. In Lancaster, Paul Ashwin is Professor of Higher Education at Lancaster University and Deputy Director of the Centre for Global Higher Education. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. Um, My highlight of the week is a little self-centred, but... um, I got sent a blog from Michael O'Neill, an early career in organic chemistry lecturer, who's been reflecting on what my recent book, Transforming University Education Manifesto, says to him about the point of teaching undergraduates. And it's just really nice. The book was written in order to inspire that kind of debate and reflection. And it's just so lovely to see that. Fantastic. And uh, good plug for the book there. The, it's, it's, a, it's a great read. Uh, the link to details to where you can buy it will be in the show notes. It's available for all. All good bookstores and Amazon as well. And in York, Marion Hilditch is Deputy Academic Registrar at the University of Bradford and Chair of Shrock. Marion, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week is that this Wednesday, it was International Pronouns Day. Uh, and although pronouns are nothing new, there seemed to be a bit more positive buzz around it this year, which was really encouraging to see and big organisations like the NHS promoting it. Um, so it's, it's just felt it's been a, a really feel good kind of like week for trans inclusion. Great stuff. So, yes, we start this week with the future. Universities UK has been doing some polling and has published a vision and there's a new report out on Scotland tertiary system. Paul, what's going on? Well, this, this I think, can be seen as a kind of shift towards the tertiary moment. Uh, as you mentioned, you've got the Scottish Funding Council review of higher and further education that's kind of moving towards tertiary. Um, you know, in anticipation of the Augur review, tertiary is also kind of part of this UUK vision for universities. And this is kind of slightly trailing in the wake of what Wales did in 2016 with the um, Hazelcorn review and their at the moment consulting about you know what 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 tertiary looks like in wales um and i think you know whilst the kind of shift to tertiary is potentially incredibly exciting having a far more open system and relationship between further and higher education in which students can move easily there's kind of three things i think you have to think about when deciding whether that's going to be affected or not the first is what are the drivers for, for for tertiary education is it really a way of saving money or actually is it about a commitment to social justice and ensuring that as many students as possible have access to high quality education it's also the question of whose perspective does the tertiary system look like a tertiary system so when I look at the proposals in Wales, you know, from a 
institutional organizational perspective it's a single tertiary kind of funding council but actually it's there's still a separation of FE and HE so really from a student's perspective I'm not quite sure how tertiary that would look and then the final challenge with tertiary is that clearly having free movement between different sectors of education is um, really important and can really aid social mobility but what does that mean for educational programs if education becomes a series of modules that you take with you the kind of education that's actually focused on a program that changes students over time becomes more challenging so that's another kind of you know difficult tension to think about in relation to tertiary education yeah this program stuff is interesting marion the, the, the universities uk the other day launched when it did the launch the vision launched this 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 piece of polling and their headline was huge demand for bite-sized learning revolution do, 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 do you get a sense there's lots of demand for sort of you know students to come and get an individual student loan for an individual module or you know is Paul right that we need to be encouraging people onto kind of more life-changing programs where's the balance um I'll be honest I don't think I have seen this uh, overwhelming demand for bite-sized learning um a review of the of the um, uh, funding um student funding would definitely be welcome as it is quite rigid right now um and that would certainly be a positive thing but uh, yes there is a balance and I think what we've seen is Although I think many people were quite sceptical about it, is how well apprenticeships have actually been used and received as a model of sort of this blended uh, staying in full-time work, but um, also at the same time developing your learning. And I think there's definitely more room. There is an appetite, uh, but um, what form that takes is perhaps, as you say, um, there is a balance uh, between a, a sort of a, a full-time, um, a, a sort of a full-scale uh, degree and bite-sized learning or accumulative credit or being having the opportunity to, you know, start learning, give it up and then come back and make use of what you've done in the past. Now, Paul, who knows the, where, where, the, where, where the Orga review uh, response will end up? But, I mean, I think we were expecting some kind of response to Orga to come out in this FE white paper but then over the past 48 hours it's kind of emerged that there won't be a comprehensive spending review and without a CSR it's quite hard to imagine that major proposals will be sort of launchable isn't it? Yeah no I mean it's very difficult to see how how a number of things in relation to higher education policy with the Orga review and also with the long-awaited period Pierce review of the TAF, you know, we're kind of in a situation of kind of waiting whilst universities are under incredible financial pressure. I mean, you know, the kind of, you know, it's kind of striking with the UK document, how it's, it, you know, it's titled very boldly as a vision for universities. But when you actually read it, it's a list of things the government needs to do. It, it feels kind of a strange thing for universities UK to, to be doing at the moment is, is you know, is is very much foregrounding what they want government to do rather than foregrounding what they can do and what universities can do. And and clearly it's completely understandable given the kind of financial precarity of the sector. But as a tactical move, I'm not sure it's the smartest one. Marion, I was having a conversation with someone the other day that went along the lines of lots of this kind of, you know, looking to the future, vision stuff and so on. It's actually genuinely difficult when we are still as a sector in the middle of handling a pandemic, you know, the, 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 yeah, I, I don't detect a lot of, and I don't think this is anyone's fault, but I don't detect a lot of kind of big vision stuff going on inside universities. People are just kind of coping, aren't they, at this point? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I do have to agree with what Paul was saying. The UK report did read very much. First of all, it read like something that that is happening in the world without a pandemic. Um, and then it also read like something that was very much of the offensive. So it was just trying to damage control. 
a damage limitation rather than a vision of the future, which the um, Scottish report actually, I think, does a bit better in that sense. But you're absolutely right, Jim, in that the sector is certainly not in any place right now to think ahead. Uh, we've had a very rough, uh, what, it's been seven months now, uh, where we were just trying to make do and trying to keep everything afloat. And I believe the sector has done an exceptionally good job of that. Um, but I don't think anyone is, is uh, in, uh, in a place right now to be um, creative about what's to come. But at the same time, I want to say that I think it would be a missed opportunity if we do not uh, look at what we have achieved over the past seven months and try to build on it. Uh, our digital literacy as a sector has certainly um, gone up and I think we have to make use of that and build on that for the future uh, and perhaps start to reconsider some of the traditional uh, teaching methods that uh, we have always taken for granted and see whether there is anything that uh, positive that can actually come out of all the things we've learned. Paul, you were saying that, you know, obviously in, in Wales, to some extent, we've got this kind of um, kind of superstructural change in terms of funding councils, but actually below that, we're still going to have FE and HE. What, what's your impression of where the Scotland document might kind of take the tertiary sector to north of the border um well at the moment the, the scottish um report seems seems much more ambitious and 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 fundamentally much more radical but it's at a much earlier stage and my reading these kind of initiatives is that they start off bold you know when you read you know i was, I was looking the, the other day again at the hazelcorn review that's bold and radical and then the way in which that's been um then institutionalized you know for, for very good reasons then then becomes more more like a kind of reorganizations of kind of policy bodies so so you know the big question is is how do you get the different sectors together and and in a way the UUK report kind of gives a nice view of that because clearly it engages with tertiary um you know anticipating the auger review but it's very much a tertiary version that's kind of shaped and dominated by universities you know in in, in my reading of it and and I think that that's the you know that's a big challenge how do you get these different institutions together with different institutions with different interests and actually create a system that works from the student's perspective that that is really really tricky and uh, and, and when you're starting out as you know or in the earlier stages as the scottish review is it's it's easier to be radical once you engage with the kind of different interests and the need for each institution to be sustainable then that becomes much more difficult great now let's see who's been blogging for us this week Hello, I'm Robert Perry. I'm the Head of Research at uh, Consultancy Picojar Communications. Um, this week on Wonky, I've blogged about students and their perceptions of the value of university during the COVID-19 pandemic. I spend a lot of time talking to students about their experiences and in my piece I reflect on the current growing demand for, for fee refunds due to what they see as a, a diminished service this year. This can turn into a very impassioned debate because those of us in the sector know how much hard work has been going on behind the scenes to provide online teaching and remote access to services or that kind of thing. But students don't really see any of that. They don't see any of the extra work that's going in. They just know that they haven't been getting what they believe they've paid for. So I explore some of that disparity in perceptions and I argue that the sector now needs to address how it how it talks about value, how it makes that case to disgruntled students or students in the future. Hi, I'm Rhea Bluck and I work as research practitioner at the University of Nottingham Students' Union. Our most recent piece of research called I Just Feel Really Misunderstood is a qualitative exploration into EDI and marginalised students' experience. And we did this by exploring themes of discrimination, representation and well-being. 
We soon saw how different types of engagement through student groups can help develop a sense of belonging and how intra-minority discrimination can threaten that. To ensure belonging, it's important to build an understanding between students who don't share protected characteristics as well as represent marginalised groups more generally. If anything, this research acts as a call to others in higher education to conduct similar institution-specific research and take the necessary steps to understand their own marginalised student communities. Now, next up, more future-gazing. HEPI has updated its predictions on demand for HE into the future and has reached some startling conclusions. Marion, explain. This is the brand-new HEPI report that came out on Thursday morning about um, demand to higher education to 2035. This is an update to the earlier report by HEPI, which came out in 2018, which was um, demand in um, higher education of uh, 2030. Uh, and uh, it's reached some... Um, um, sort of predictable and perhaps conclusions such as there will be a high demand um, but however it isn't quite as much as uh, they had predicted uh, two years ago because we are seeing a decline in the number of 18 year olds post 2030 um, it's also um, making a lot of assumptions about um, perhaps policy around recruitment and the demand itself uh, remaining constant throughout this period but effectively, the conclusion is that we're going to need uh, uh, many more uh, universities worth of places in order to cope with it in England. Uh, whilst in Scotland and Northern Ireland, we're seeing um, a little bit more of a, uh, a sort of an evening out of demand versus number of 18 year olds. Paul, it's fascinating, isn't it? There's, 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 there's people use graphs from HEPI's publications on this, and then sometimes they use data HEs, and you know, there's a kind of rivalry about <laughs> the two sets of project- projections. But either way, you know that both both point to you know this significant growth in demand because of population how can it be met can it be met um well yeah the question is you know the, the processes by which it's met so kind of how 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 is it met in terms of the detail um and and that you know kind of my reading of the happy report is is that this isn't really telling us what the future demand will look like it's preparing us to think about the shape of higher education in the future and how we begin to to maneuver it so 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 that it can meet that demand and and again you know we're we're waiting for so many i'm kind of sorry to to repeat things from earlier but you know waiting for the auger review you know outcomes and response and you know as you said the delayed suspending review so much is uncertain this kind of adds to the weight of the need to do something but until those structures are clearer it's you know you know my, my sense is the demand will be met because we've never had that that moment really where you know it hasn't been but how it's met is kind of dependent on on things that we're kind of still waiting to see the shape of marion in some ways the story of the last you know six to eight weeks has been a story at least in the press about traditional residential higher education people in the boarding school model leaving home going somewhere else to read a subject and being packed into halls of residence and then spreading a virus (laughs) but you know is i mean is it sustainable to meet the sort of demand that happy talks about here through more kind of boarding school HE or do we have to start to get really clever about other types of you know ways to meet the demand well, yes. I mean, I work for universities that does not follow this model. So we uh, we do not have student accommodation. We do have a large percentage of students living at home. And 
Um, so this national conversation over the past few weeks has felt a little bit alien in a way. Um, so um, I don't think that, you know, even if you take it at face value that demand for HE will, will you know, keep uh, the current trajectory, I don't think that that necessarily means that it will keep that, uh, the demand will be for that traditional model. And that coupled with the conversation we've just been having about types of uh, education and different educational models, there's certainly a lot more space for more online learning. Uh, the space for, you know, I don't know if we're still talking about two year degrees or not right now. It's hard to keep track, but, um, there is definitely, there are different types of learning. And this, I think th- there are absolute benefits to the model. I, I really dislike the boarding school, uh, terminology, but there are benefits to the sort of traditional university model. Um, and, uh, both, you know, the, beyond, um, education and, you know, uh, allowing young people to leave home and, you know, become part of a different community. That is the benefit in it itself that uh, we can't overlook really so there, there is room for different models here and there is absolutely no need why um, what we need to be focusing on is more uh, traditional style universities. Paul let's say there's loads more local loads more kind of bite-sized stuff loads more two-year degrees and then there are still a whole bunch of universities that are kind of fairly remote academic theme parks on the edge of a town or city like where you work (laughs) are we doomed forever to view you know the sort that that sort of traditional he as the most elite you know as as the thing to aspire to or or could we get somewhere do you think where you know that the the kind of mixture of different types of he might be regarded you know more sort of equally i guess um it it certainly feels like we're we're doomed to do that i mean mean, you know you know varieties of education and varieties of pathways incredibly important um but you know when they're for other people or other people's children then, then 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 you've got 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 a real problem and I, and I think you know certainly um you know online education for part-time students who have a rich kind of environment in which to take um their learning outside of the university context works really well i think you know that you know there's a real educational challenge in having full-time online programs that give the kind of rich experience that you'd have um in a campus you know you know either in a campus or a city-based university but where you're going and you're and you're mixing with other people and 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 there's experiences outside of the you know kind of core curriculum that that help you to develop and, and think about what you're doing at, at whatever age so so you know that 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 for me is, is one of the challenges of you know people talking about the shift to online it, it's difficult to know what 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 would be a rich educational environment if you're studying full time um, online? I, you know, that that that's something that that that, that I struggle to see. Um, but yeah, I think you know, particularly given the, the the model that's developed in England and the kind of way in which prestige and quality are wrongly but very strongly connected to each other in, in people's perceptions, you know, it's very hard to see how you can get away with get away from the idea that the elite is higher higher quality, even though there's plenty of evidence that 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 those two things don't necessarily always go together. Now, Science Minister Amanda Soloway made a speech this week and DK was listening. So Tuesday saw happy host Science Minister Amanda Soloway, who had been heavily trailed with announcing a review of the Research Excellence Framework. It's fair to say things didn't quite play out that way. She did admittedly confirm that she had written to Research England to start working on a plan to reform the REF with devolved counterparts, as indeed is customary at the end of each cycle. What we didn't really get was a sense of what this review might entail. 
Soloway spent a long time on what I like to call the ref myths. Old chestnuts like how refable research can only be an article or monograph, how journal impact and citation counts are distorting the publication process, and ref is somehow to blame for this. I need hardly add that, although each myth contains a kernel of accreated truth linked to the way some less experienced providers interpret ref rules, each has been slain time and time again in the published guidance to ref. Opinion is divided on the speech. I heard uncanny echoes of the letters page of the Times Higher Education Supplement in the early noughties. Others saw a threat to the very idea of research assessment. But this was alongside the hugely welcome nod to the Forum for Responsible Metrics and parallel international initiatives to stop people measuring research in silly ways. And to be absolutely clear, Soloway committed to protect the dual support system. It was not the speech that was advertised, but there was much to welcome in a closer look at research culture. But what this has to do with the REF, along with conclusions reached by the Stern Review that lie waiting to be implemented, is unclear. Hi, it's Debbie from Team Wonky here to tell you that on the 4th of November we'll be hosting an event, bringing the sector together to talk about student retention at Don't Drop Out, averting a student retention crisis. We'll release new research into how students are feeling and hear from students' unions about what's going on on the ground. We'll think through the challenges for universities of keeping students on course, helping them socialise safely and maintain their well-being during all the disruptions they're experiencing due to COVID-19. And we'll ask about the national policy implications of a potential student retention crisis, as the government frets about how to bring students home for Christmas, should we really be thinking about what happens in January? Do we need to create an exit strategy for students and a safety net for universities? That's Don't Drop Out on the 4th of November. To find out more and book your tickets, go to wonky.com forward slash events. Now, every week on the podcast, we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in a market type system, but when we had planning bodies, how should we do that? Now, the biggest set of expansion came straight after the Second World War, where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back, um, either they already gone off to war they've been off into a variety of different occupations and they were going to want to have higher education the americans handled this through their uh, gi bill um, but we set about just expanding our universities the interesting bit is they started planning for this in act you know active way in 1943 so before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. Um, and off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Um, again, if we think we have trouble now, try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought, so they were ready for them all to expand. The only difference is that um, the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded uh, to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. And so A.D. Lindsay uh, persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about um, how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. Uh, And so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential um, uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute so it's trying to do something different and they get going and everyone else starts to expand and then we go through the 50s just slowly upgrading universities so the university colleges become universities they all expand 
there's a bit of a backlash if you think about um, Kingsley Amis and Lucky Jim and his more means worse thing um, but generally this is the idea that we can continue by the end of the decade it's clear we need more universities they accede to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton but then um, having got to that stage they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities and then starts this marvellous thing this bidding competition to have universities so the bidding competition to have new universities is an excellent and really exciting example of how British university planning worked. They set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily uh, sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said, can we have a university, please? So they're ready to go. So they've got a, a group of people they can contact and say, are you still interested in having a university? And they work out what the criteria are for having a good university. It needs plenty of land in order to expand. It needs to have good access to schools so that staff uh, will come and let their kids um, go to those schools. Um, it needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communications to other universities, but there's no kind of fixed uh, idea of what they should do. They also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be, so they just let the applications come in and then sort them out. So um, different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in, sending in their different um, uh, bids, some from rather unlikely places. So for quite a long time, the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool. We're going to have the University of Blackpool. Um, that attracted quite a lot of uh, comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place, um, and so people... Uh, you know, had different views on this uh, and the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying um, I think um, he says I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool a university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning not spivery and paganism and he goes on to say that he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho uh, and now it turns out that uh, Lancashire um, starts to move more in the direction of uh, uh, Lancaster itself. Um, they acquire some land at Bellrig and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing in exercises. So there's a, um, a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire. Uh, uh, and he hears that... Um, that people at Stanford might be quite interested in having a university they're one of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the middle ages and he gets really involved in this uh, and he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stanford and they get quite a long way down the, the thinking one of the key reasons is that Stanford's uh, got a new bypass so it's got plenty of land uh, it's been redeveloped and you can think about having a university and there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stanford to get going uh, and these keep going through so there's a, a bid for uh, University at Glastonbury. Uh, this nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury um, and create a new university city. Uh, now, he doesn't get anyone else supporting him, but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the uh, the civil servants of the UGC saying, well, that's that's very interesting. Do, do follow up with some more details. So you go through these kind of stages and, and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university. Some of whom that's fine they get they go and get their university so we have uh bids from bournemouth and carlisle and chatham and chester and 
there's uh, one from Coventry, which is obviously quite successful, but Plymouth and Salisbury and Stamford and Stevenage and Thanet. Thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again, uh, but in the end is, is passed over in terms of, of Canterbury. So you get this kind of wonderful pickup of these things. And the files are just great as you go through them, uh, and you get this different information sent in by these people trying to say, well, can we have a university place? So the best correspondence I found on the file is from the Swindon people. So the Swindon people start by this very apologetic letter from the town clerk saying, um, people in Swindon have asked me to write. I'm not sure personally about doing this, um, but, but what's the process? Um, and then he kind of gets more into it and the Swindon say, well, one of the things we want to do is, is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town and a university might be quite good for us. So they, they kind of talk about how this might go through. And his correspondence backwards and forwards uh, goes on and on over about four years because cause they don't quite get going in time. Uh, and slowly, you know, it's clear that other people are getting their universities. Um, but, but they're not. So by the end, when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities, this is a sad little letter in from the town clerk uh, to the UGC. Um, Please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter. I'm not going to harass you. I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, we've, we, perhaps we could use a new bit of land. It might be a better bet for, for our new Swindon University. Uh, and he ends it in a sad little sign-off. Now, please don't toss this into the waste paper basket. Now, the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC. It's still lovingly kept on the file. Uh, Swindon did not get to have its university. Uh, the cut-off had come, and the government had changed its mind on how many universities it wanted. Because at that point, um, the uh, new Labour government decides, that's it, no more universities. Uh, we're going to stop uh, approving them. We've got enough students uh, into the planning period, uh, and we'll have no more. Now, young people hate democracy because they can't afford their rent or something. Uh, two new reports this week on big generational shifts. Paul, tell us more. So, yeah, so, so they're two separate reports. I, I think they're probably, um, you know, kind of pushes in slightly different directions. So there's a report from Loughborough that more people in their 20s and 30s are living at home um, for kind of fairly predictable reasons, um, un- unstable job market, high rents and then related personal issues. So, you know, living at home with their parents um, for longer and, you know, clearly if you do that by choice, that's one thing, but if you do that because of a lack of other choices, then then there's a real issue there. Um, then um, the, the other report comes from Cambridge and it's kind of worth reading in that it's to launch a new centre on the future for democracy so so in launching a centre you want a big headline and you know that they've got a big headline in terms of um, young people being um, disillusioned with democracy um, more more than you know they have been over you know the past 20-30 years um, and there's kind of a few things I'd say about that first of all it's important to be clear that all of the data they're drawing drawing on was um, is pre-pandemic data so we shouldn't read a kind of pandemic factor in into this um, the other thing is that you know what what they were asked about was um, how is democracy working in your country? So this isn't necessarily a philosophical rejection of of democracy as a concept. It's a dissatisfaction with the way in which democracy is working in their, in their countries. You know, and, and over half of young people in in the UK are um, feeling like that. And and in a way, I think this is possibly hopeful because they should be dissatisfied. You know, you look at the response to the climate emergency we're facing. You know, our democracy is not responding to that well. 
Um, and if you, you know, look at, um, you know, I was reading recently Peter Gagan's um, book, Democracy for, for Sale, and the influence of, of dark money on the democratic process in the UK is deeply concerning. So, to be honest, I'd be more worried if, you know, a high proportion of young people were satisfied with the way democracy is working, because we have clear issues about the way in which certain interests are controlling the political agenda and controlling it in a way that is not allowing us to respond to an existential crisis that we face. And and, and and just, is the dissatisfaction about the sort of, you know, the way in which democracy delivers for young people's personal interests, or is it more about these kind of bigger macro issues, or both? I mean, what where's the, what's the sense that comes through? It's kind of hard to say, because, because the, you know, the, you know it's, it's, it's drawing from 25 different um, projects across 154 countries, and, and, and because of that, it's kind of, you know, at quite a high level of abstraction. And the questions that, you know, they're asked are about how satisfied are you with the way democracy is working? So, so it's difficult to tease out out the reasons. But, you know, so so I've given you my version, but, but clearly, you know, um, there, there will be other reasons. Marion, the Boomerang Report creates this sense that you know, that the, there's a kind of extended early adulthood, you know, that this, this, it's, it's, you know, I was reading it thinking this is another one of those reports that sort of says you're not going to own a house or, you know, have, uh, start a family or whatever till you're 30. You know, what do you, it's this thing about the twenties, isn't it? What, what are, what is life like in people's twenties? Um, and, you know, I guess that, that old model that said we graduated people into the kind of real world and, you know, they would very quickly, you know, uh, obtain all these life markers that's gone hasn't it gosh that's a big question but i think that's gone that's been gone for a long time now um and uh certainly from you know conversations with the younger people i've been having the past year i mean that your 20s has always been pretty much the time when you couldn't afford anything uh let's be honest i don't think it's ever been very different um however i think anyone who's been around you know the past 10 years at least uh, will know that you know housing in particular um is in crisis um you know it, graduating university and buying a house is just not a thing um unless you are very lucky indeed um and uh, you know the country has been in, a, in not a very good financial state for quite some time. In fact, the world has been. It isn't a UK-specific phenomenon. I would be very surprised if it was. Um, but it is very interesting to see these things sort of uh, against each other. The um, um, the political disillusionment, if you will, um, against the, uh, the opportunities that young people have had. Because uh, you know we're talking about millennials. We are talking about people who are nearly forty years old now. So it is something that's been going on for some time. It isn't something that's happening now. Um, but um, just to add to uh, what Paul was saying, I think it, it does go a little bit beyond. So certainly in this country, just a number of elections we've had the past few years uh, and how polarised the country has been. And, uh, um, you know, the number of um, demonstrations we've had, the number, you know, uh, the I think it has been very hard to change anything. Uh, and I think this is partly where this disillusionment in democracy comes from, the voting doesn't change anything um, and the only times you actually see anything changing is uh, what's happening in the US now with Black Lives Matter uh, which is a really sad place to be um, that we need to get to that point to actually see something changing for the better. Wow blimey this is this is uh, this is all very upsetting. <laughs> Paul look if, if I'm gonna spend 
m- most of my 20s at my mum and dad's house. Why am I being shoveled into university at the age of 18? Why can't I do it when I'm 25 or 26? Why does the conveyor belt, you know, push me straight in? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's an excellent question. You know, that kind of what David Watson kind of popularised as the royal, ro- royal road to, to ed- education. You know, it's, it's a really good question. You know, it would be far better to have a far more flexible sk- kind of system in which people can come and go at different moments you know the biggest barrier to that is the, the kind of limitations that currently kind of look like they're being flexed a bit more about whether you can get funding to do the same level of qualification more than once um but yeah no i mean i think it's 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 a really good question and and it, and it might be that that those kind of shifts in where people um live and and how they live kind of lead, lead to changes in education but we're kind of again caught in this tension that at one level you know there, there's there's right and genuine concern about how people can choose to to live um away from their parents but there's also kind of also you know this sense of investing in a house about about what what the access to that resource gives you later in life and you know allowing you to pay for your your care when you're infirm so you know there's a, there's a there's a real tension here because that whole sense of it being an investment is directly linked to the fact that you know so many people can't afford it so so we can't have both we need to actually kind of d- decide where to go with it let me let me ask both of you so you know, you know one of the things in that democracy report is this idea that you know democracy should on some level function to serve the population's interests right so if the population if, if everywhere in the world that we've got an aging population and that means the electorate is getting older is it is, is it realistically possible to serve the entire electorate both socially and economically or are we doomed again to a kind of future where you know, either major political parties pick a generation or, you know, the pe- people under 30 are kind of vaguely abandoned. I mean, wh- where where will it go? Where will it go next? If, if, the, if, if, as I say, you know, the balance of electoral power is with, you know, people that are in their 50s and 60s. Well, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure it is, Jim. You know, if, 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 if you if you read Democracy for Sale, you know, it's not people in their 50s and 60s who are shaping policy. It's it's unaccountable money coming in and pushing politicians in certain directions with certain agendas. And, you know, we can see this in the way that the pandemic has been responded to in this country, that the way in which, you know, track and trace has been kind of almost ideologically um, given to, you know, to, to private companies who are making a profit rather than looking locally. You know, I, I think it, it, w- it would be less depressing if, if a generation had been picked. But actually, you know, it's being shaped by by forces, you know, actually, you know, beyond the country ra- rather than by particular, you know, demographic sections of the population. Good. Now, yes, it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here with this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment they couldn't lock down. I was thinking about international students this week and the question is simple. Are providers with more full-time undergraduate international students also those that make the most money from full-time undergraduate international fees? Do more students always mean more money in this most price-sensitive area of the UK higher education marketplace? Does it correlate? Um... yeah, I'll say possibly a weak correlation because because subject mix is going to be key as as well as number. So you know, for example, having a management school is going to you know in, in, increase your income. Um, but yeah, I, but I'd still expect it to be a weak correlation. 
Yes, it does. R squared is not 0.91, a very strong correlation. Despite the variation in international undergraduate fee levels, the relationship is clear. Volume is most important. I've also worked out the average fee income for this group of students for each provider, and the highest is... Harriet Watt University at just over £52,000. The University of the West of Scotland sits at the other end, apparently making just £2,600 per full-time undergraduate international student. Data is from the HESA student and finance releases for 2018-19, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Now, finally, universities and their students' unions in Wales are going to receive an additional funding package worth 10 million quid. Marion, what are they going to spend it on? This is the most excellent news that this money is going to be spent on uh, mental health, food packages and um, digital enablement during the pandemic. Uh, This is money that comes on top of the previous uh, 27 million that the Welsh Government gave universities during the summer. Um, And it appears to come with no strings attached. Uh, which is indeed very refreshing uh, and very positive to see. Paul, it's uh, 10 million doesn't sound like a lot, does it? But uh, given there are, you know, 15 times as many students in England, this would be 150 million if it was in England. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a lot of money really, given it's halfway through the academic year and it's got to be spent by the end of the academic year. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's 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 really welcome news, it's really good and and you know, the challenge is working out what to spend it on effectively within the time you've got to spend it. That, you know, that that that's often the challenge with these things. There's is the time it takes from finding out about the money to work out an effective strategy can, can sometimes take a while, and when when the time is short, that that can that can sometimes be challenging. But it's but but symbolically, it's incredibly important. You know, given given the kind of um, situation students are facing and the challenges they're facing, you know, um, th- things like this are incredibly important. Paul, more broadly, uh, how wh- why is it that we've sort of ended up in this strange position where universities are, are seen as the state? For almost every aspect of student life, you know, it's, it's universities that must fix X, it's universities that must, must support Y. Is that, has that, is, have we ended up there by accident? Is that deliberate? And is it wise, I guess? Um, well, well, it's historical. Um, the story that uh, Lewis Elton, kind of one of the first professors of higher education in, in the UK used to tell, what was it goes back to the, the days of Oxford where there was a student practising archery in the street and killed a local person and there was a big debate about whether the student should be dealt with um, by the university or by the local police and the decision made was that, that the university was responsible for disciplining the students. And Lewis Elton argued that, that that's why in the UK we have this model in which students are dealt with by their institutions for, for kind of clear crimes such as that, but also in terms of welfare. So so it's not, you know, sometimes it can be kind of tied up with a kind of new infantilization of young people. But actually, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, the very early days of, of universities, you know, in England. Good, well that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. Uh, So thanks to Paul, Marion, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.